Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the words that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions. To bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations and took possession of the fruit of the people's toil that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty Father, we ask that you will uh, speak to us. We don't want to just um, we don't want to just read texts as if they're just old books um, and interesting. Vaguely, we want to uh, worship you in spirit and in truth. 
Um, and we ask that you would make yourself very, very real to us and that you would speak uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, everybody. Um, will you please turn back to uh, Psalm 105? Um, I think that's on pages uh, eight and nine in your service sheets. If you're using uh, a Bible, um, it's, the Psalms are usually right in the middle of the uh, Bible text. Um, we're going to look at Psalm 105, and we're going to think about courage again this week. Now, we talked about courage last week. Um, but it seems to me that we need more than one sermon's worth of courage. Does that, does that make sense to you? Because, um, like, it sort of feels like the world's, the world's, like, gone on lockdown, falling apart, things like that. Um, and so we need courage. And one of the things we said last week, if you were with us, is that we said that in order to have a Christian courage, a full, robust kind of courage, we have to have an expanded memory. We need to be able to remember uh, what God has done in the past. We need to remember not just how God has worked in our individual lives, because none of us have lived enough life experience to really deal with life adequately. We need a memory that's bigger than our own individual life experience. We need a memory that remembers what God has done through thousands and thousands of generations. And that brings us to Psalm 105. And here's why I say that. Uh, this Psalm was written thousands of years ago. Uh, and it's a big song about God's beauty. This psalm uh, was written to uh, help us look at God and say, God, you are beautiful and compelling. You're wonderful. You're faithful. And you exceed all my expectations. Now, even as I say that, I can imagine somebody coming back and saying, um, well, okay. I guess I'm not surprised that the Bible would uh, put God in a good light, right? However, I can imagine somebody saying, um, that all sounded a little bit more believable uh, a couple weeks ago before the whole world went on lockdown and everything went crazy. Um, and if that's what comes up for you, to which I, say, I respond by saying, you know, fair point. Um, however, can I ask you to look at Psalm 105 again? Do you see how and why Psalm 105 celebrates God? Psalm 105 celebrates God by telling uh, four stories, I almost said three, four stories uh, that talk about Israel experiencing absolutely existential crises. And that's a little odd because if I wanted to persuade people that God was really, really great and that everybody should follow God, then I would try to market it. I, I would try to say something like this, you know, um, follow God, because when you do, everything goes great in your life. Everything is going to be amazing in your life. And you can say, like, hashtag blessed over everything. Um, <laughs> with, hashtag blessed. I, I reckon that, that's like five years old, isn't it? Um, it's probably the last time I looked at Facebook. But anyways, you, you get, you, you understand what I mean. Psalm 105 does almost the opposite, however. Psalm 105 says this, if you really want to see the beauty of God, you have to watch how God works, not just in the really good times when everything's amazing, you have to watch how God works through our very worst crisis. In fact, there's a deep way in which you don't really know God, not deeply, until you see his beauty in the midst of the pit. 
when you when you are in the worst. Now, here's what I want to show you today. If we want to be a, a people of courage, if we want to be a courageous church, then we have to remember that God's grace targets our crisis. Let me explain. Take a look at the reading. Take a look at Psalm 105. And let me fill in a little bit of background. Uh, like I said just a minute ago, this psalm thinks God's amazing. And the reason Psalm 105 thinks God is amazing is summed up in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Uh, verse 8 says, uh, God remembers his covenant for forever, the word that he has commanded for a thousand generations. What does that mean? Well, it means that the animating center of God's beauty, according to Psalm 105, is that God remembers something. God does not forget. And in particular, the thing that God remembers is God remembers his covenant. Now, what in the world is the covenant? Well, think of it this way. A covenant is a new relationship built on a permanent promise. Marriage is a covenant. It's a new relationship built on a permanent promise. Or adoption. Uh, adoption is a new relationship built upon a permanent promise. And, and that's what a covenant is. A, a covenant, therefore, is uh, more intimate than a business contract. It's more relational than a business contract. But on the other hand, it's far more binding than just an ordinary friendship. Now, keep that in mind. Psalm 105 tells us that God has established a covenant with Israel, that God has entered into a relationship a, based upon a permanent promise with Israel. And it all started back with Abraham. Uh, Abraham, uh, God reached out and grabbed Abraham's life. And, and God said this, you can read about this in, in the book of Genesis. Uh, God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Uh, not because something in you, but just because uh, I'm deciding to do it. I'm going to give you a family and I'm going to give you a homeland. And I'm going to use your family to bless and redeem and reconcile the entire world, all the families of the earth. Now, that's the big promise, the covenant that God made with Israel through Abraham. And Psalm 105 tells us that God hasn't forgotten that promise. God hasn't forgotten his covenant. And God keeps his word in every single generation. Okay, all that's background. But now look at these four crises in Psalm 105. Here's the first crisis. It, you can see it in verse 12. Let me set the scene. This is Abraham. Abraham and his family uh, have been called by God away from their home in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is modern-day Iraq. They're now in modern-day Palestine, and they are chronic immigrants. What I mean by that is that Abraham never really got a home. Abraham and his family spent their entire lives meandering around the Middle East, and they had to trust God to keep his promise uh, without ever really knowing what was going to happen next. They never really had a home. Now, do you think that was a crisis for Abraham? If you read the book of Genesis, you'll find out that uh, being an immigrant, a chronic immigrant, a sojourner, it scared Abraham out of his mind. In fact, we know that Abraham felt vulnerable to the point of panic. How do I know that? Well, uh, I'm going to tell you a nasty family secret about Father Abraham. 
you can read about this in the book of Genesis. Did you know that Father Abraham, the, the father of the faith, you know, um, he, Father Abraham gave his wife away to a king to save his own skin. So uh, Abraham was afraid that the king was going to kill Abraham to get his wife. And so he, he said, hey, just, she's, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Take her. In fact, he did that twice, two separate occasions. Father Abraham, I mean, who does that? Uh, that is abysmal behavior. There's absolutely no excuse for it. Why would he do that? Abraham did that because he felt vulnerable. Or maybe better, Abraham did that because he did not understand how God's grace targets crisis. Abraham thought that um, his experience of vulnerability meant that somehow God must have defaulted upon his covenant and therefore Abraham was on his own, had to do whatever came, whatever idea came into his mind, but he was wrong. God remembered his covenant and that's what it says in verses 14 and 15. Take a look at it. It says, God allowed no one to oppress them, despite the fact that they were uh, chronic immigrants. He rebuked kings on their account, and he said, touch not my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Now that verse, touch not my anointed ones and rebuking kings, that refers to the fact that God uh, intervened in the story to protect Abraham's wife, Sarah. God protected her both times that Abraham sold her out. What's the point? Here's the point. God's grace targets our crisis. And that means that crisis and vulnerability does not mean that God has checked out. Crisis and vulnerability are very often the times when God's grace breaks in most decisively in our lives. Do you believe that? That's the first crisis. Uh, Psalm 105 gives us a few more. Look at verse 16. Now the scene is several generations later. This is uh, Abraham's great-grandchildren now. Abraham's dead, uh, but two generations later, Abraham's family is about ready to starve. Now, if you're them, then you can understand how clearly this time God must have checked out. This time God must have defaulted. He kept his promises to Abraham, but maybe it doesn't last for that many generations but not so. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, God had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Now, slow down with me a little bit here, and we'll see how God's grace targets crisis. Backstory about Joseph. Uh, Joseph, again, you can read about this in the book of Genesis. Uh, he was the youngest of 12 brothers. Uh, well, he was the second youngest of 12 brothers, and he was, uh, he was an arrogant little guy, and he was a privileged little guy, and he drove his brothers bonkers. Uh, I'm the youngest of four. I know how to drive brothers bonkers. Um, Joseph was good at it. But here's nasty little family secret number two. Joseph's brothers, to get back at him, sold Joseph into slavery. And Joseph's life falls apart. Joseph gets trafficked to Egypt and he spends years in slavery. And then he gets charged for a crime he did not commit and he ends up uh, being uh, 
imprisoned for years. His life falls apart. Now pause here. Can you notice that in this second crisis, it's not just one crisis, it's crisis layered upon crisis. So you have a family that's about ready to starve. Joseph's life is utterly ruined. And his brothers hate each other so much that they're willing to sell one of them into slavery. It's a mess. It's a total mess. Crisis upon crisis. There's an economic crisis. There's a crisis of justice. There's a moral crisis. Crisis upon crisis. And where in all of this is the God of Abraham? Well, the answer is smack in the middle of it. Start with Joseph. So Joseph's exile, again, you can get the details in Genesis. Joseph's exile over the course of years ends up humbling him. And then in a completely surprising way that nobody could anticipate, God ends up reversing the whole scenario so that Joseph, who was a slave and then a prisoner, ends up being Pharaoh's right-hand man, like the chief of staff or something like that. God targets Joseph's crisis and creates a remarkable reversal. But that's only the first stage because it ends up that God had actually planned to use, follow here, God planned to use Joseph's suffering to save the whole rest of the family. Um, let, me, let me say it this way. Years before the economic crisis that the family went through, years before Joseph's family felt insecure, back when they felt really confident, already at that point, God had, so to speak, set up the chessboard so that Joseph would be ready at the right moment to be God's agent to save the rest of the family. Here's how it happened. Joseph's brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, years later, their money runs out, there's a famine, they're about ready to starve. And so they go down to Egypt because there's food there. They're immigrants again, and they beg food from Joseph. <laughs> Just think about... How, how, would, how would you re respond to those jerks? Well, the thing is, Joseph had already experienced God's grace in his life. And because of that, miraculously, Joseph forgives his brothers. And he provides everything that they need. Can you see how God's grace really targets crisis? But then we need to get more subtle, okay? Because Joseph, at the end of his life, uh, Joseph has this conversation with his brothers. Joseph is reflecting upon his life. And he, and he says basically this. He says, brothers, listen, you guys remember that time you sold me into slavery? Yeah, you meant to hurt me. Like it wasn't inadvertent. Nobody sells somebody into slavery inadvertently. You meant evil, he says. And his brothers, you know, I mean, the game's up. They're like, totally, we meant evil. But then Joseph says, Despite that, God had other plans. God took your intentional evil and turned it to good so that, Joseph says, through my suffering, many people are saved, rescued. Or let me put it differently and slow down and see if you think that this is just. God used Joseph's suffering, his crisis, to save his brothers. 
His brother, think about that. His brothers were guilty. They deserved bad stuff, right? On the other hand, Joseph was eh, relatively innocent. Relatively, he deserved better things. But in God's plan, all that got reversed. Joseph suffered bad things and his brothers got a bailout. Joseph suffered and that suffering saved the lives of his brothers, his enemies. Now, does that seem fair to you? It doesn't really seem fair, does it? Okay, this is, Emmanuel, this is so important. Okay. See if you can identify with this. Uh, When Jim experiences a crisis, uh, my instinctive priority is this. Stop the pain. Can you identify with that? Like, just stop the suffering. Find the suffering button, turn that one off. Like, what is the shortest route to security? And because that's my instinctive uh, uh, response, and, you know, I'm a terribly religious person, uh, I go and I pray. And when I pray and I ask God to intervene in my life, in my mind, my expectation is, I'll know that God has entered and intervened in my life when everything's better, when everything feels better and I feel comfortable and I'm like sipping a latte with like cinnamon sprinkled on top. In my crisis, my priority is my own comfort. But that is not God's priority. When God intervenes, his priority is his covenant, not my comfort. Now remember the covenant. It's a new relationship built upon a permanent promise. And the entire story of the Bible is about how God promises to intervene and do everything necessary so that God's enemies can be reconciled and become God's adopted children. That's the story of the Bible. God looks at his enemies and he says, enemies, even though you hate me and you mean wickedness, I'm going to do everything necessary so that you can be reconciled to me. In fact, I'm going to use your crisis. I'm going to use your vulnerability. I'm going to enter into your suffering so that I'm going to leverage your crisis, your suffering, your vulnerability. I'm going to leverage it, all of it, so that you will find yourself on your knees before me being reconciled to me and becoming my adopted children. Now keep that in your mind and go back to Joseph. God's grace targeted the crisis. But his aim was not to give everybody what they deserved. And it was not to give everybody the comfortable life they desired. God's grace targeted the crisis so that he could bring everybody to reconciliation. So Joseph's suffering brought him to a deeper humility. In that humility, he forgave his brothers, and that mercy transformed the whole family. God's grace targets our crisis, especially to bring us to reconciliation. Reconciliation with God, reconciliation with each other. And that's the theme of the Bible, or a crucial one. And you can see it in the rest of Psalm 105. I'm not going to go into much detail here, but the, the other two crises, um, hundreds of years later after Joseph, it, uh, Egypt enslaves Israel, and God's grace targets that crisis. And he sends Moses, and through Moses, he gives Israel both political liberation, but more deeply, he brings them to a deeper intimacy with him. 
That's his big aim. And then a little bit later, the last crisis in Psalm 105, Israel runs out of food and water in the desert. What are they going to do? God brought them into the desert to kill them. No. God's grace targets them in their crisis, gives them bread and water. But more deeply, the book of Deuteronomy tells us that God's purpose was to teach them to depend upon God moment by moment and breath by breath. Do you, Emmanuel, see the pattern? God's grace targets our crisis. And his aim is always to draw us closer to him. God wants us to experience that new relationship based upon his permanent promise. And of course, all this goes just extreme when you get to Jesus, right? The story of Jesus, do you remember this? The story of Jesus is not um, uh, God targeting our crisis from a distance. God, uh, the story of Jesus is God himself entering into and tasting and experiencing and suffering the consequences of our crisis. He took upon himself our deepest crisis. Do you know what your deepest crisis is? What does it, what does it feel like? Does it feel like health or finances or isolation, community? All of those are big crises. But the Bible tells us that we've got a deeper one. And the deeper crisis that all of us are facing is that we are a bit too much like Abraham and Joseph's brothers. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Abraham and Joseph's brothers, remember, um, they failed to trust God. They thought God had checked out on them. They took the matters into their own hands and that led to exploiting people and mistreating people. It means they, they rejected God. It, it led them into sin. We're like them. And I, you know, I can hear somebody saying, what are you talking about? No, I'm not. I'm not giving my wife away to somebody else. I'm not selling somebody into slavery. Fair. I hope you're not as bad as they are. But slow down. And pay attention to yourself when the foundations of your life begin to tremble and break. Pay attention to yourself when everything in your life that reassures you that everything's okay, when all that crumbles, and watch what your soul does. Watch what your soul does when your health is called into question, and when your money is called into question, and when your community is called into question, and when all of those things start to shake, and you feel stressed and scared and desperate. What do you do? What does your soul do? Friends, our souls, we panic. And we find out who we really are. And very often when we look at ourselves honestly, we find out that we prioritize ourselves over and against God and over and against other people. And nothing good happens when that happens. In other words, we sin. And just like Abraham and Joseph's brothers, we need God to target that crisis. We need to be rescued from our self-made, selfish, sinful crisis. And that's what Jesus does, Emmanuel. Just like Joseph, Jesus suffered for his enemies, us. Just like Joseph's brothers, we can be reconciled through that suffering. And so, Emmanuel, that's Jesus's priority for us to bring us deeper into that new relationship based upon his permanent promise. And he, so, he, he sealed that permanent promise with his own blood. He died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could be reconciled to God and to each other. 
And Emmanuel, in all of this uncertainty, that's the one thing, that's the one thing that we cannot lose. We, you know, we can lose our health. Uh, we can lose our money. We can lose our community. People around us, people we love, we can lose them. But when you know God as your father through the death of Jesus Christ, you cannot lose him because he will not lose you. Now, how does that build courage in us? Well, look back at the text. Verse five says this. It says, remember the wondrous works that God has done. What does that mean? Well, you know, you, you look out at the world right now and it, it just feels like it's crumbling or, or at least on lockdown. And that's super scary. And I don't know what's going to happen. No one does. You don't. No one does. And, and it doesn't help for us to try to be optimistic right now. That's not the point. Remember instead the wondrous works that God has done time and again through thousands of generations. Or put differently, in verse 3, it says, glory in God's holy name. What does it mean to glory in his name? Well, remember this. God is not overwhelmed by this crisis that we're, that we're in any more than he was overwhelmed by uh, Abraham's crisis or Joseph's crisis or Moses's crisis or Israel's crisis or the big giant crisis of our rejection of him and our sin. Look at God. Look particularly at Jesus Christ and remember how God entered into our crisis and experienced it all. He's been there before. He's been through worse crises than whatever you're facing right now. And he did all of that to bring us to him. Look at Jesus Christ in glory in his holy name, and then look at this world. And that'll create a new context. Look at whatever it is that's frightening you right now. Look it in the eye after you look at Jesus. And know this. But if I belong to Jesus Christ, then I can know that Jesus Christ will orchestrate everything in my life so that I am drawn ever more closely into intimacy with my Father in heaven. And so that I am empowered to be an agent of reconciliation to others in this world. And yeah, of course there's going to be suffering. We work for a guy who went upon the cross and that was the apex of his ministry. There will be sacrifice. He told us so. And we're going to feel vulnerable. And that's normal for somebody who belongs to Jesus. But despite all of that, if we entrust ourselves to Jesus, there will be joy. Because there is no greater joy than being known by God. And no greater joy than knowing him back and saying, you are my father. So that means we need to learn to pray a little bit like this, okay? We need to learn to pray a little bit like this. God, life's awful right now. It's okay to say that. Psalm says that all the time. But despite the fact that life's awful right now, God, the book says you're good. And I can see your goodness in the face of Jesus. Now, right now, I can't see how my life and your goodness quite line up. I can't see that right now. But I believe it anyway. And that means that I'm waiting for your grace to target my crisis. So, Father, do the work. Do whatever needs doing in my life. Do whatever it takes to get me closer to you. And I'm, I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for your grace. Ever prayed like that? Start. It's the prayer of courage. 
But then also verse one says, make his deeds known to others. Remember, Joseph uh, told his brothers about God's grace in his life, and it, and it led his brothers back to God. And so, Emmanuel, you should expect in the midst of this time for opportunities to do the same thing, to be an agent of reconciliation to others. Because if God's aim in this crisis is to reconcile people to himself and to each other, then we should expect and ask for those opportunities to be part of that story, to tell others about how God's grace has targeted us in our lives. So Emmanuel, expand your memory. Remember that God's grace targets our crisis. And above all, remember how Jesus entered into our crisis so that we could know God. And then look out at these present dangers, formidable though they are, trusting that God's bigger than all of them. And he's going to draw us to himself. And he's going to draw others to himself. And we will glory in his holy name forever. And this will be part of the story of our eternal praise. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.